0: This is Lines on Music Podcast, Episode 5, Made in Ireland, Part 1.
1: Okay, uh, here we are in Dublin's Dockland with the River Niffy lapping against the back walls of a new rehearsal space uh, in the hometown of you two.
0: In October 2020, Routledge published Made in Ireland, Studies in Popular Music. This is part of Routledge's global popular music series, which, as they put it, is devoted to popular music largely unknown to Anglo-American readers. When this was released, I was quite excited to read it. Obviously, there is already quite a bit of existing writing on popular music in Ireland, but this, to my knowledge, is the first edited collection of academic essays on Irish popular music. And as such, it's an important contribution to international popular music studies. When it was released, I was really keen to see what was included, what approaches people took, what artists and styles were featured, and I must say I really enjoyed this collection of essays. This episode is part one of two, For the podcast, I was interested in speaking to some of the editorial team about the whole process and how the collection of essays came together, how they decided on the thematic sections, and just to get a whistle-stop tour of the book in general, and we'll get to all that shortly. For part two, I wanted to take an in-depth look into one of the chapters. There are some really standout chapters in this collection, such as Aileen Delan's essay entitled Faith, Fury, and Feminism in the Body, Voice, and Songs of Sinead O'Connor, I also particularly enjoyed Eileen Hogan's essay entitled "Prochial Capital and the Cork Music Scene. Particularly compelling also was Trina Nighiakon's essay, The Politics of Sound, Modernity and Post-Colonial Identity in Irish Language Popular Song. And it is this essay that we will take an in-depth look into in part two. But for now, let's get back to this episode. Made in Ireland is edited by Ónia Mangawang, John O'Flynn and Lónón Ávríán. And in this episode I speak with Onia and John about the collection. So by way of a quick introduction, Dr. Onia Mengawang is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Oslo. Her work is concerned with how music is used, experienced and mediated in everyday life, particularly by those on the margins of society. Starting in Norway, her current project, Prisons of Note, aims to map the use, experience and circumstances surrounding popular music in places of detention. Her first monograph from 2019 is entitled Dangerous Mediations, YouTube, Pop Music, and Power in a Philippine Prison Video, and that is available from Bloomsbury. Dr. John O'Flynn is Associate Professor of Music at Dublin City University, where he teaches courses in popular music, film music, music sociology, and intercultural music transmission, amongst others. To date, he has six book publications, including The Forthcoming, Music, The Moving Image, in Ireland, 1897 to 2017, which is also on Routledge. And he's written numerous peer-reviewed journal articles, book reviews, and and encyclopedia entries. His research interests include film music, the sociology of music, and popular music, amongst others. So with introductions done, let's get into the conversation. I began, well, at the beginning, by asking how the project came about.
2: On and I were working together on a project based at St. Pat's, Dublin City University, on mapping popular music in Dublin. So, um, we had that, that year, and I suppose it went beyond the year of the project to where well, we had lots of conversations, um, about popular music studies in Ireland, even though our project, that one was specifically based on, on, on Dublin. Um, and it was actually applied research related to tourism. But, After the project, yeah, that's where we started to think that there, while there have been some great uh, books um, on a generic, general history of popular music in Ireland, we didn't really um, have something that really brought together this critical mass of studies that that have emerged in recent years, partly from people uh, doing PhDs or other kind of research, whether it was Irish-based, UK-based or elsewhere. So, so we kind of came up with that idea, but then um, Lonon O'Brien um, and I were both down at the ICTM uh, World Conference that, that was in Limerick in 2017. And so independently, Lonon um, saw the routage stand there. They had their whole made-in series. So so it was sort of, um, so was sort of like two plus one, and then we became a, a group of three people who were looking at the same thing. So I suppose it was uh, half and half. Our idea, and then the Routledge series just being the perfect fit. And actually,
0: you know, in the I guess before the preface in the book, you know, it does kind of explain the Routledge series. You know, there's a couple of other European countries covered. I think Hong Kong um, and a few others. Um, but yeah, I guess the aim of the series is to identify popular music kind of outside of the the kind of mainstream Anglo-American kind of the, the dominant kind of uh, artists and probably discourse that we're kind of normally familiar with. And so I guess. The theme of it is to, you know, bring to light kind of music in Ireland, I guess, in, in this case. Yeah, and I mean, something that's kind of interesting in the introduction, and you talk about this, is, you know, the complicated political and kind of geographic backdrop of Ireland. So, you know, obviously we have the, the South, uh, the what's the Republic, and then we have Northern Ireland. Um, and you mentioned this, that there's a, the different kind of mediation that happened in, you know, I guess, in the last kind of 40 years, probably, or maybe older, actually, longer, um, you know, with the BBC and other kind of dominant media sources over there. Uh, and then in the Republic, then we have a different kind of um, media, um, I guess, body, the radio, television, Éireann, or, you know, what would be uh, RT Radio 2, for example, for popular music. Um, so maybe for listeners that don't really know, uh, I guess, the Irish context, maybe you can highlight just that. That, that first kind of, uh, I guess, issue in terms of tackling popular music in Ireland? You know, there's just two different spaces on the same island, maybe?
3: Uh, thanks, uh, thanks Jeremiah. That's a really good question, and you're, you're going dropping us right into the deep end there, I think. Okay. Um, well, the both. first of all, I, I actually don't really see it as a the- problem at all, really, because it's uh, it's it's we, we were very clear from the outset, all three of us were in agreement that we were interested in popular music in the island of Ireland. So it it, it uh, that was a huge um, factor for us that that we were looking at the entire Ireland um the entire island of Ireland, both north and south. Um, but of course, yes, with that comes the challenges, as you mentioned, that, that we're talking about different access to uh, popular media, for example, like you said, Northern Ireland had access to BBC and to Top of the Pops and to all of these other things that were maybe um, a little bit not as accessible in, in the Republic of Ireland or you know, weren't as accessible um, until later, which of course has had an enormous influences on how um, popular music has travelled around Ireland and how different acts than the artists were actually heard on, on on the radio and on television and um, through things like that. So, um, I mean, yeah, I think John, uh, in our introduction, John actually wrote the um, a lot of that introduction that kind of covered the really nice history. <laughs> it's so, very nicely surmises the, the kind of uh, quick um, history of, of the island and how we Have kind of taken to approach it in in our book but of course that's only one version i think of of uh of approaching um popular music studies in ireland and that's how we chose to
2: kind of address it i i agree it just really didn't um i mean we would just assume that if we talk speak about ireland uh that it would be including both jurisdictions uh but you you raise a really important point because the there was a tendency, particularly in a lot of um Irish history and Irish Irish music studies as well. Um and I might have been because of revisionism that people just, just generally spoke about uh when they had these books uh, up to quite recently, it was about the twenty-six counties, as though um we had no connection with the, the six counties that, that form Northern Ireland. So um yeah, but it it, it, it is also messy. It's messy because your uh the other books in the series like Sweden and Hong Kong and Taiwan and whatever, they are single jurisdictions. Um mm-hmm. whereas we're we're covering two. So so I think that's um it, it was a challenge in some ways, but it's also uh it it also kind of makes you not so lazy. You know, you you're not you can't just assume that there's one ethnicity mm-hmm. or one nationality or one way people think. And um, so I think that, that having chapters that focus on scenes or musicians from Northern Ireland um, has been particularly uh, well. I think it's it's really added value to the volume.
3: I will actually add to that point just very briefly that um, actually there was one example that that I did turn to more than once um, from from the book series actually, and it was the made in um, made in Australia and Eritrea slash New Zealand. So so that book also dealt with you know two two different two uh, distinct territories, and, and uh, I think that was quite useful for us as well, or at least for me, um, in thinking about how we'd approach us here.
0: Oh, yeah, I think it's just kind of an important point to touch on at the beginning of it, just as kind of, as John, as you said a minute ago, it is, it's just got a bit of messiness to it in a way. But um, then also, and again, you touch on this in the introduction. There's the added element of the diaspora as well. So, of course, all the kind of extended Irish the first generation or second generation who live in England as well. And I guess right. that's touched on a little bit. Um, maybe kind of link, linking to the space or to the to the place, I should say, um, is also maybe the definition of popular music. So maybe we should probably just like stake out that very briefly. Um, you know, of course, Ireland has a rich history of traditional music. Um, traditional Irish music or trad music. Um and for some that is maybe a vernacular or traditional form of music, but for others that is the popular music as well. It's also the music of the people. So I mean maybe you could kind of give us some like sense of what you mean by popular music in relation to, to the text here.
3: John, do
2: you want to take this <laughs> <laughs> too early in the morning? Yeah, you need you need to finish that too, don't you? Um Yeah, I I think it um You know, it's sort of all of of what you said, Um, popular music can be defined by any music that is enjoyed by large groups, large populations. Um, It also has obviously a specific meaning uh, in scholarship as post-World War II, um, starting with with, uh, Anglophone popular music, um, and then extending to other parts of the globe. Um, You're... vernacular music embraces popular and traditional and we, this question this question has come up so often. Um, I think we say in the introduction that we recognise that it's, it's it, sometimes it's strategically useful to separate traditional music from popular music, particularly in a country like this where there is such a distinct um, and vibrant traditional music scene, it is quite unique. But because it's so popular, um, because it's so uniquely popular in this country, um, that I think it does uh, it does have to, it doesn't have to be, but I think it merits consideration of inclusion in the popular. And uh, for example, I know we're going to kind of talk about some of the sections in the book, but I think uh, particularly in, for example, Adrian Scowl's chapter, uh, where there's this, where the lines between genre um, and, or even major style categories um, are not so clear anymore. And, and this also emerged actually in, in the mapping popular music in Dublin project as well, um, where, where there's this post national, post genre sort of turn in music scenes here. So, so for that reason, actually, it just seemed to be quite a natural fit.
3: This was a question that we we had dealt with a lot in, in, in that Mapping Popular Music project where we were actively asking people what did they consider to be popular music in Dublin or in Ireland. So people were giving us their definitions of it. Um, and that was one way to approach a sort of very inclusive definition of popular music, but also know one that's fluid and actually captures the nuances in what is changing constantly you know and it's popular music for you what's in the charts or it's popular music for you what you listen to Mm -hmm. in your local pub with the covers band doing you know whatever kind of medley so it's and I think that for us was quite important in again covering popular music in Ireland It, it had to be what the people of Ireland, or what people who were researching music in Ireland thought of as being popular as much as anything else. So, mm. I hope that's what we try to convey in the book, anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that definitely comes across. And you know, in the different chapters, you've got that full range, as John just mentioned there. Um, Adrian Scall's uh chapter, which touches on traditional and the popular, um, through Triana Nishiokon's uh chapter, which kind of touches on things from as far as. From the Eurovision Song Contest to uh, Irish black metal, and then you have, of course, like the, you know, in the final section, chapters on the DIY scene, um, like Jamie Jones' uh, chapter on Dublin DIY music scene, and uh, Kieran Ryan's uh, discussion of fanzines as well. So you've got that full breadth of the kind of traditional through to the very um, twee popular of the Eurovision to DIY punk and and black metal and everything. So it's really great coverage there. Maybe you could just give us a sense of the overview of the book. So it's broken up into three sections. Maybe you could kind of tell us what these three sections are, these three thematic sections are. Um, did you have those in mind to start with, or did you kind of arrange the chapters and kind of decide on the thematic sec- sections based on what you were receiving from the
2: authors? Well, we didn't, um, we didn't issue a call for chapters, um, which uh, I think for some volumes would be the right approach, uh but this one just seemed to kind of evolve just work out organically because we were both um i suppose we have different networks but we've we've similar networks as well and we're from going to all of the conferences from being at i particularly uh but also ictm and even society for musicology in ireland um, and through other networks we 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 kind of knew what was was out there, but we also discovered some new things. So so I, first we were looking at at um, the really good scholarship that was emerging, and then I think the probably with with those categories in the back of our minds, probably without saying that as such, and then and then we kind of looked at what we had, and then we came up with the um, with the three categories. That's that's again a messy process, um, but they seem to be I think you know like history historiography is mentioned in the first section but obviously it, it, it that's that's a thread running through everything everything is a history everything is a story so uh but then the the central one um i suppose maybe to go back to the first chapter, to the first section um very specific histories like uh michael mary murphy's chapter on uh record industry you know that's just a just a wealth of material there that um, I certainly wouldn't have known an awful lot about.
0: I really enjoyed that chapter. It's very much a history of Irish record labels um, and, and something that we kind of touched on a while ago and that you mentioned in the introduction that even though there's been lots of writing about popular music in Ireland, this is the first, you know, um, specific collection on popular music in Ireland. So, it, you know, it, it does kind of distinguish itself as that. Um, and so I thought it was great, yeah. So part one is music industries and historiographies. And the first chapter there, which you just referred to, is A History of Irish Record Labels from the 1920s to 2019 by Michael Mary Murphy. Um, and it's a great introduction because, you know, of course, popular music is bound up with the modes of production by the promoters, the distributors, the mediators. Um, and so, like, just to start out with that uh, overview of the record industry or record labels, is, I thought was really, really excellent beginning to it, uh, which I really enjoyed. And and interestingly enough, it actually kind of spurred off this conversation I had with my brother, who's about 10 years older than me, um, who would have grown up in Cork City and kind of would have been around, I guess, that early punk or post-punk scene in Cork City. So we ended up having a really nice conversation about, you know, the record labels that were linked to that and the Cork scene at that time, which would have been before me. So, so yeah, I really enjoyed that. But...
3: No, I, I love, loved reading Michael's uh, chapter. And I think mm. there's so much more as well that he has to say on it, actually. So mm. I think, uh, if, if people are particularly interested in, um, in the history of Irish record labels, um, and it's, mm. it's fascinating the kind of work he's done to trace, you know, the, the, the foundation of Irish music, uh, labels, which actually is a, a woman in New York, <laughs> an Irish immigrant. And, mm. and I mean, it's just even so interesting to be thinking about the foundations of Irish record labels as, you know, starting out as basically DIY labels in themselves yeah. as well and, and it being set up by by an Irish immigrant um, yeah. and a woman, no less, as well. So all of these things they're just, they really do um, I think they colour how we think about it, the music industry itself and it's why it's so important I think to tell these stories and to tell these histories because we mightn't have ever thought that this is how uh, Irish record labels actually came to be. Um, but I think Michael is planning to write more on this. I think he's been, he really enjoyed this chapter and he ha- he's sitting on so much more material about this.
2: I think he's doing something with my colleague in DCU, Jim from Yeah,
3: Yeah, he had a book coming yeah. out. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, so that, I'm really looking forward to that. And, and then, I, I mean, then, you know, um, I was around for some of this, and uh, I do remember Dave Fanning. Uh, so the, uh, and Dave Fanning can still hear Dave Fanning.
3: <laughs> we all still remember Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fanning. We'll
2: be remembering Dave for a long time to come. Uh, but, uh, and actually, I I think I remember the time we had a, an interview with Dave Fanning for the mapping. Uh, I was so nervous about it, but I actually managed to speak faster than Dave Fanning, which is, which is <laughs> Just <laughs> quite it's a
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but he—I um, mean that chapter as well. You know, you kind of, for someone that lived through that as well as now looking back at it academically, you you just realise how important and how seminal mm-hmm. those those shows were. Um, in just and that was just a unique kind of collaboration between uh, between musicians and an emerging popular music radio base in Ireland. Mm-hmm. That was just fascinating um that's uh helen governs and Lonan or chapter. yeah i mean
0: that that chapter again it's really interesting really fascinating so i guess for anyone listening who isn't from ireland dave fanning of course is uh like a radio dj and you know kind of coming rising in the 1980s i guess um and yeah his show kind of giving a platform to up-and-coming artists um, and the interesting thing that um helen and Lonan talk about is how at that time in Ireland, people didn't have, um, I guess, the funds or access to the studio recording technology to kind of give them, you know, a really good representation of themselves on demo tape, for example, and that these fanning sessions gave them a platform. So that's a really, really interesting part of the history as well. Yeah, it's kind of quite fascinating. I also like that, um, as you know, kind of archival resource. Uh, they're, you know, talking about the RTE guide, um, you know, which is kind
2: of an interesting archival resource as well. Yeah, very
0: interesting chapter.
2: Um, I mean, I don't know if we're going to go through everything, but obviously, the remaining yeah. chapters, um, you know. So, so we were so uh, it was so amazing to have Aidan Gillan's chapter um, on on the subject of Sinead O'Connor, mm. um, and as you know, uh, it just coincidentally in the coda by Jerry Smith. Um, he, it, that, the figure of Sinead O'Connor also comes up, and Sinead O'Connor emerges also in um, Laura Watson's mm. chapter, or at least um,
3: briefly, yeah,
2: briefly. You know, so it's briefly in that. So it's just a her presence and um, across Irish popular music. I think, although we, although maybe the chapter isn't, there aren't chapters necessarily focusing on some of the what people might expect as the major exports of music from Ireland. Mm. Um I think, well definitely, obviously Shane O'Connor, if you want to view popular music in that way, would be. Mm. Uh, but it's 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 much deeper than that, I think. Um what, what's explored particularly in, in Alien's chapter and, and also in Jerry's code afterwards. Yeah.
0: I think I think Aileen's for me was they're they're all excellent chapters in their own right, but there was a couple of standout ones for me and Aileen's definitely was a standout. Um, you know, as you mentioned, like Sinead O'Connor is, I guess, looking back now, kind of a canonical figure in Irish uh, popular music. Um, but I think it's maybe the way Aileen deals with uh, Sinead and her music. I guess it's bound up in the kind of, you know, I guess what she identifies as the different periods of feminism or the different waves of feminism, I should say, that kind of Sinead touches on. And I guess her her situation in, I mean, how should I say it? Um, I guess her, her kind of conflict with mainstream Ireland in a way, you know, kind of uh, in conflict with, you know, the Catholic Church. And um, it's this really interesting and kind of complex topic. And I think Aileen de- dealt with it really, really well. But yeah, it's, that's probably one of the standout chapters for me personally.
3: I also think it, it for us, it was so important to have uh, this chapter in the book. And we were so, so happy that Aileen, you know, wrote, mm-hmm. wrote it because... It feels to us that there was just such a dearth of information and scholarship on Sinead O'Connor, given how much work she has contributed to popular music, both within Ireland and internationally, what a hugely important figure she is and continues to be um, the fact that she's you know still producing amazing work uh, right. you know in a career that's probably spanned over 30 years now so uh, you know it, it it's quite it was quite shocking for us I think and probably one of the motivating factors anyway in in, in this book that you know that people like her have been sort of largely omitted from popular music history mm. and you know this is part of the task of this and uh, part of the joy of doing this book was to be able to give a voice to a lot of these figures who mm. have kind of just been marginalized for whatever reason um and mm. Aileen does a really, really lovely job of of rectifying some of that and also giving maybe some leads as to why and and you know this kind of evaluating her work in terms of feminist theory in terms mm. of sarah ahmed and and some really mm. lovely scholarship that that put into conversation um the reasons why we tend to marginalise those voices that are either female or that are mentally unwell or that have different uh, issues going on. So I think she does such a nice job of it in this chapter.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I feel it. It's like excellent scholarship. And going back to the chapters we were talking about a while ago, the Michael Mary Murphy chapter and Lone Owens, they're very much kind of historiographical, you know, kind of archival research. Um, Whereas, you know, as you said, in terms of scholarship, Aileen's is much more critical, critical theory, you know, drawing on the work of Sarah Ahmed, As you mentioned. Um, So yeah, it's kind of, you start to see the different kind of methodologies at play here in the different writing, so that's really, really fascinating as well.
3: It also presents the challenge of actually writing about a living person, (laughs) you know, someone Mm. who is uh, actively still producing work and just the ethics involved in that too, to write about somebody in a way that that focuses on their work and and, uh, yeah, making that the the focus of the article. I think that was just really uh, excellently handled by Aileen too.
0: in the interest of time, uh, well, we'd love to go through every single chapter, uh, maybe we'll jump on to part two, which was Roots and Roots, um, which you have written the introduction to that, John. And you also have a, a chapter in that, that maybe we can get into in a little bit more detail. Or maybe you could um just tell the listeners about that that section, um, this thematic section and kind of what you're trying to get at, kind of putting all these chapters together.
2: Yeah, thanks. Jeremiah, well, obviously, it was kind of a cheesy pun on the two ways that we can spell um, roots. Um, But uh, probably has been done before. Uh, But it it just seemed that it it was continuing on, you know, as I said, history runs through everything, the whole book. Um, So different roots and pathways. um, And then the roots obviously maybe touches on ideas of the vernacular um and of course the the first chapter in that section or is it the first one um let me have a look back but the the chapter by Noel mclaughlin yeah yeah and joanna brown irish baby sings the blues so so we're talking about different routes there um and the the intersections um so i i I, yeah the intersections are i suppose different musical influences and a very unique um, Irish or Northern Irish experience um of actually Patterson um and, and you know to, again to go back to the earlier conversation it's just that whole that whole sphere where you've got a, North, a Belfast scene and then is that linked to the UK scene um and yet towards the end of the chapter we find that that in in her own view of things um she did have some some specifically irish aspects to to her musical identity um which seemed to be quite important that that sort of came that was a revelation for me when reading that chapter mm. it, because because they discussed that quite late uh, but i suppose most of the chapters look at specifically at the interface of irish traditions um, Irish culture and popular music. So obviously the Irish language is in there. Um, we felt that this was something that hadn't been covered at all in in scholarship on popular music. And uh, I mean people might think of, for example, Welsh popular music and Sarah Hill's work on that. Um, and it's not as though there's a preponderance of, of Welsh language bands, but there would be quite a it would be a more important strand, I'd say, than it has been today in this country, or at least we thought so. And then, and then, when we see um, Trina Hikans chapter, um, it it paints a very different picture. And when 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 those those vignettes are put together, you see, oh wow, this is a little bit more substantial um, than we had thought before. Uh, so I really love those 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 three very very different examples put there. The Eurovision winner. <laughs> Sandy Jones, I think. Um, yeah, I'm
3: frantically looking it up right now. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, so, and then Clannad, um think from Harry's Game, mm. uh, and then, like you said, just the the whole um, death metal scene. So, so they're very, very different kinds of music represented in that. Um, but. At the other end of the Irish language spectrum, you might say, is something that is tied very much to local tradition. And uh I, I mean I'm aware Sheila Denver is a colleague another colleague of mine, and I'm aware of her great scholarship, and it's all in the Irish language. So I was thinking this would be great if if some of this work uh could be made accessible to an Anglophone readership. Mm. And You know, Sheila, Sheila has these, these are, uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful ethnography, um, the way she's working with these, these musicians who, of course, she knows intimately from her own practice, um, as a channel singer, and as a musician, and as someone from the same locality, Uh, but I I, I could be wrong, but I think that, that um, this, this is a unique example for global popular music studies, where they're the main, way that uh, music is transmitted is live performance of new songs on radio so while some of them ha- uh, have gone out previously went out as tapes or more recently as CDs, uh, the main way that that music is disseminated and shared is through local Irish language radio Radina Gael mm. um, So you know it was it was really interesting working as editor with Sheila just she was saying John how do I reference this um, you know, it's it's so I, I hadn't really expected that we would we would come up with something that was quite unique. And of course from a musicological point of view, the the uniqueness of it is that it's blending this idea of Shannos idiom with your largely three, four metrical country and western songs, mm-hmm. uh very often Aeolian mode for the for the music geeks who want um, to kind of go into those details, but that was really quite interesting as well, that it, it was uh, also talking about a unique hybrid genre in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I mentioned Adrian's uh, chapter, uh, which was really fascinating um, in terms of, of, again, I think it's very strong on theory, this chapter, um, in, in looking at, at, at the concept of post-genre, um, and and whether we can, whether musicians really are considering the categories that, uh, whether whatever kind of commentator, whether it's academic or journalistic, are, are putting on music the labels that we have. Um, we've mentioned the the chapter by Noel and Joanna, um, and then of course we have. Uh, Stephen Miller's chapter, which is obviously on a a, quite a disturbing topic, Mm -hmm. um, which is on on one aspect of his more broad-ranging study on music during the Troubles and music and its connection to political violence. So in this case, um, looking more specifically at how the, a very, very local scene um, where you have newly composed Republican ballads are actually encoding as a way um, for a community that doesn't have a voice to, to give expression to what the community has experienced. And, and I just want to say you know, that this is quite separate from the kind of commercial Irish Republican ballad scene, which uh, although it's connected, you might say, because it's, it covers some of the same repertoire, but Stephen's chapter, um, for me, was just such an insight into seeing how important um, a political ballad is for, for a cultural memory and mm. as a way of, of keeping alive in, in memory some of the events that, to this day, have not um, been properly investigated in terms mm. of the atrocities experienced by all communities in Northern Ireland.
3: Absolutely.
0: <clears throat> it's interesting, just the kind of topics that, like- cut across all of those chapters um you know i guess language identity cultural memory um in a funny way they also can link to some of the chapters in the next section which we'll get to in a little while but just thinking of uh griff rolofsson's chapter about um rap and hip-hop in ireland there's just you know even though that's quite far away musically from the chapters here uh there's just that cultural reference as well is kind of happening quite a lot there Um, and maybe we'll come to that in a while but Before we do that, um, the final chapter in part two, Roots and Roots, is your own chapter, uh, which is called Other Voices in Media Representations of Irish Popular Music. And again, that's a really, really interesting chapter. Uh, I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, I guess what you're talking about is the idea of otherness, uh, what you say in mediations of Irish popular music. Um, So maybe you could give a little bit of context, especially for those maybe who aren't from Ireland that might listen to this, um, so you, you've got uh, Other Voices in uh, quotation marks because obviously that has meanings for those who are familiar with the Irish popular music scene, um, but also in terms of how you're kind of thinking about the voices of the popular music scene. So maybe you could give us a bit of context
2: to that chapter or give us an overview of it maybe. Sure. Um, thanks for the opportunity. So it's... Um, other Voices is a is a festival that began around 2001 and it from the outset, it was a very small festival, its location is in a town called Dingle, which is in West Kerry on the Atlantic coast. Uh, The capacity, audience capacity of the church is so small that from the outset it was broadcast. So while it does have this aura of liveness, um, I think the festival and its organizers have been really successful in transmitting that aura of liveness uh to much wider audiences um through it started off first um and continues with with tv broadcasts um primarily on rte the national broadcaster in ireland uh but they originally started with with cds and then they uh they have obviously podcasts um or they have spotify this um and then the festival moved around so it, it it became a it became linked to a brand and um, this other voices brand um so they you know they had their own uh they they moved to in Ireland to places like Ballina and mayo to Derry to belfast um to electric picnic festival um and then to london to berlin um new york so so it's it's this it's sort of linked almost with this, um, this idea of showcasing what in the promoters and the organizers' um, perspective would be alternative music acts coming from Ireland. And so I, I interrogate that. Um, I wanted to to write about it because I think it was really, it's really important. It's, it's such a phenomenon um, in Ireland and it's a really important one. Um, so I, I'm writing from a point of view of admiration of of it as a as an enterprise, and I'm also writing it um, from a critical perspective. Insofar as it it um, it projects this idea of alterity and being the other voices of Ireland, and it plays a lot on this this idea of having a geographical marginal status. But in fact, what I argue is that it's at the mainstream. Um, and it's, it's at the mainstream of Irish media. Uh, I mentioned one or two events uh, which were um, in association with the Office of the President of Ireland mm-hmm. um, in the chapter as well. So that it's, it's, although it's saying it's on the edge, it's on the margins, it's alternative, it's other, um, what I'm interpreting is that it's actually been quite successful in, in manipulating the airwaves and mm-hmm. in projecting that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's broadly what it is but it's it's also i'm not maybe i'm wrong but for me it was the first time that i actually wrote about music festivals so i was sort of interested to 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 see comparatively um whether some of the things that were claimed as unique to this other voices festivals were in fact unique and um and some are and some are not Mm.
0: yeah i mean yeah there's a lot of interesting themes there i guess it's like center and periphery is that kind of like key theme there you know so we have i guess <clears throat> dublin as being kind of outside of the the mainstream kind of london new york popular music in the wider world but then at, at the periphery of ireland like you said this festival taking place in dingle initially right right at the edge down in the south um so yeah you've got these kind of kind of binaries at center periphery and then also like you said kind of otherness um, but yeah, like you said, it's the mainstream. Like, lots of the artists there are the dominant artists of Ireland. I guess, you know, your Lisa Hannigans and your Ben Hansards and things like that who are alternative, but also very much the mainstream. Yeah, I just,
3: to, I just wanted to add that it, it, it's timely as well, just actually having to think about your chapter and, and reading through it again, because I don't know if either of you were watching the Other Voices home last night that was being broadcasted. Um, yeah, so it's, it's the latest enterprise in the Other Voices sort of... Um, I don't know, I don't want to say empire, I'm not sure what the right <laughs> term is, but the, in uh, in the in the other voices uh au revoir, wow. I guess. Yeah. Um yeah, so it it was a live streamed um gig last night from the Guinness Dorehouse. Mm. Um and very much, you know, spreading the message of um well, hashtag OV home. So it, it was it was very much promoting the idea of home uh to people like myself who were stuck elsewhere this Christmas and who were away and, and who can't get back to Ireland. And, um, mm. but actually it was like, I felt like maybe ha- have they read your chapter, John, because I thought the programming was the most diverse programming I've ever seen and of another voices mm. um schedule before. So it was quite interesting. They, they covered a lot of genres. And um, I think they, you could tell that they really were, you know, going the, the distance to try and kind of, um, included many different genres and styles and uh, representations of Irish popular music um as you probably could in like a 90 minute or whatever length mm. of a sort of a gig it was so um you know so it, it it's interesting how these things are obviously they're constantly um evolving in and of themselves as well and and that you know this other voices that you talk about in this chapter is very much a snapshot of what it what it is and what it was at that moment but they're changing so much as well there's 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 um uh, new things happening within that organization and new things happening mm-hmm. within gosh i mean i don't want to think about how much has happened even within irish popular music since we finished the book <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I yeah. was at your funeral
1: funeral, funeral. Boy, was at your funeral. funeral. Oh, I was at your funeral, I was in the cubicle I was there when you were young, laid out looking beautiful You were born on Silver Spoon. Oh, yeah. you were born so beautiful oh, yeah. All the leaves are falling, the summer leaves into autumn Call it a world is on us, pick our brains up from the bottom uh. City rains in my soul It's a fucking savage reason to come home Savagery that they all had to leave their homes But it's a fucking savage feeling to come home Maybe Maybe we just don't don't belong belong. But I was at your funeral I was in the cubicle Oh yeah yeah. I was there when you were young You were there when I was one Oh I was at your funeral. Your mom was on the pew at me. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I saw you at your funeral. Maybe it's not news to you, but I'll be leaving soon. Mm, I'll be leaving.
0: I'll be leaving. Yeah, it's interesting that you're talking about, you know, it's now online, obviously, given the context of COVID and everything, but. Um, But it has, as you talk about in the chapter, this um, history of kind of reaching out to the diaspora, and you you kind of mentioned that a moment ago. um, Like, the people involved in this were linked to uh, that Royal Albert Hall performance um, hosted by the President of Ireland, uh, which I guess is about the Irish diaspora, especially the Irish in London, but it was featuring primarily Irish-based artists, right? Um, So these are some of the other topics that you touched on.
2: Yeah, and, and, you know, I... I, um I hope it comes through in the chapter that i as i said i really admire the uh the achievements of it and the reach and particularly the production standards um there's just, they're just they really raise the bar of of media production of popular music in ireland um so i hope that comes through as well um i, I suppose really the only question that i'm left with is um if it is if, if this is something that that does enjoy this central success. Why, why is it, um, why is it still framed in this, in this sort of term around otherness? Uh, but I think that, you know, the compared to the only comparison I can think of is the Jewels and I mentioned it's the Jules Holland show. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just, I love that show because it just, I just feel I'm there with the liveness of it. Um, and I think, I think Other Voices does that. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am I'm. I was aware of that show, but I haven't seen it yet, Anya. I'm looking forward to catching up.
0: Okay, so I guess that leads us on to part three, which is uh, scenes and networks. Um, and so this was the uh, kind of thematic section that you uh, kind of, I guess, can we say, edited or curated, Anya. Um, so maybe if you want to, would you maybe want mm-hmm. to just give us an overview of some of these maybe, or touch on one or two of them at least?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. I, I mean, obviously if... Time was not an issue. I'd love to talk about all of them in detail <laughs> because I thought they were all uh, so so enjoyable to edit, yeah. and and so it was really a pleasure working with the authors on these chapters. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, it 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 kind of ended up being this way that this this ended up being the most sort of recent um, and the kind of more contemporary. Mm. Uh, side of popular music that, that was talked about in this uh, last section, so even though the book didn't really intend to be chronological and it didn't necessarily follow that the whole way through, it, this last section is definitely the last sort of post-2000 um, kind of popular music, um, and so that's why it sort of ended up um, covering, inadvertently covering sort of the effects of digitalization and the internet and how that's shaped a lot of Irish popular music in the last uh, two decades. Um, and. Yeah, I mean, again, it just we sort of sh- shaped this section based on on the um, scholarship that the authors in question gave us and, and kind of ended up working it in that way. But yeah, the, the, just to give a quick overview for, the, for those listening who are interested, the, it, it has uh, five chapters. And the first one is from Jamie Jones, um, who's at uh, University College Dublin, and, and she wrote a gorgeous chapter about um, underground music in Dublin's DIY scenes. Um, and she writes beautifully about how the kind of Dublin DIY sort of kind of 2000, mid 2010s scene is both sort of uh, a standalone scene in and of itself. But actually, because it's so small and fragmented, it, it does rely heavily on these sort of international DIY networks and that that actually um, means that even though the scene itself can seem quite precarious from the outside and constantly, uh, you know, venues are being shut down, all of these DIY spaces are suddenly just collapsing and people are having to like find venues for gigs at the last minute. But but because it, it is this uh, very active online and because it sort of crosses genres, it's not just about one particular music scene and music style, uh, that people are able to find these incredible, incredibly fast solutions and incredibly on the ground uh, ways of, of acting and coming together. So it's um it was really it was a lovely insight and a really beautiful ethnography that she she gave us of of Dublin's DOI scene. And of course already no sooner had she written it than so much of it was outdated because the the venues in question of course had had gone and you know some have been replaced, some haven't. There's a lot of spaces that just folded and people are still waiting and, and it just shows like how important it is to have these kind of flexible spaces for um for this sort of underground music themes because mm. um it's really difficult to to make things happen when there isn't um an actual space to do this
1: mm. um uh,
0: actually it's interesting that three of these chapters have like particular overlap i think so the jamie jones one that you just mentioned and then uh the carolina sullivan one on the death of a local scene also about Dublin music scene and the digital age which mm. is particularly interesting because it's got that um these two different demographics the ones that mm. were kind of part of going out to clubs and venues and kind of being visible on the scene and engaging with the scene. And then this kind of post-digital, if I can say that, um, group of participants where they didn't feel those kind of connections that have to go out to venues. Um, So that connects with the Jamie Jones one. And also the Kieran Ryan one as well, which is about the DIY... Fandines, yeah, no, of- I think,
3: I mean, I think actually it was one of the things that was so nice about editing this section was just how much sort of um, resonance these chapters had with each other. And like you said, yeah, Caroline's chapter, even though she was dealing with a very different kind of um, musical genres and, and themes, uh, she was dealing with kind of um, indie rock uh, bands and also dance music, uh, which is something that's very often left out of popular music um, mm-hmm. As well in, in popular music scholarship, so I'm really glad that we had this um, included in the in the book. But you know, it it's, it 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 was really really interesting to to sort of see that perspective of of just how much the city is changing constantly. And yeah, you start you start to wonder that is it just that you know these younger generation do do have a very different relationship with the scene in part because these menus are disappearing or that these menus are disappearing and then people are moving online. I mean, it's that kind of circle, circular effect. So, um, you know, these, yeah, these music scenes and their relationship with, um, with the online world kind of become more and more important. And I mean, you know, God, if we, we've seen anything in 2020, it's, it's that. And it's also just, I mean, how sad it is that so many venues now, already now this year alone, have probably closed their doors for for, for good. Which yeah, is-
2: well, I mean, Caroline touches on it in her chapter. But we, one of the things that we didn't really have a chapter on laws, on licensing laws, and um, on some of those mechanics of live music industries. Um, but that comes through, as you say, in those chapters and, uh there you know there there is a pretty lively nightclub scene in Dublin and uh, you know clubs with music and so on um uh, as we all know uh but the licensing laws have changed, and there's been a lot of similar to London a lot of buyout of of venues for music um or nightclubs into kind of high end restaurants or whatever mm. um so there's a lot of that going on there's um in I think house parties were always a feature of Dublin, but probably they've, with, with new migrant population groups, particularly, uh, house parties have really soared, um, across the city. And, you know, I, I live on a street with, with, with a very heavy pedestrian footfall, You see, you see a lot of people walking with, with crates of beer <laughs> about 7 PM. And um, you kind of think, okay, where's that house party going to be? So, so there's a lot of, Uh, there's probably a lot of micro stuff happening in the city that, um, it's certainly captured in, in Jamie's chapter to an extent. Um, so I think it's just, it's less about the big venues. That's what it, that's what it appears to be at the moment. Maybe we'll go back to those. I don't know.
0: And so then also kind of linked to that, as you said, like Caroline's, she touches on the DJ scene, right? That's kind of what we were just talking about there. Um, and then Kieran uh, Ryan's goes back to the kind of DIY fanzine.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, Kieran's yeah. chapter is fantastic. And it, it, yeah. it kind of introduces this other aspect of, Irish popular music as well that the the kind of heritage sector that's Mm. you know in itself nearly become an industry now and and certainly internationally this kind of uh, drive towards archiving and preserving and even exhibiting popular music memorabilia and artifacts and and this is sort of we're seeing so much of that happening in the past decade or so of you know popular music exhibitions in, in either in you know national galleries or in libraries or in these kind of different public spaces and how much Maybe just increased awareness or value is being given to to different kind of uh, physical artifacts of popular music and mm-hmm. and and I, I think Ciarán does a lovely job of of sort of articulating this really nicely because he talked about the paradox that that entails because obviously so many of these bandines were i mean they were they, they were uh, very much anti establishment they were a lot of punk there was a lot of um yeah i mean the, the idea of probably being collected and put into a book for some of these zines and for some of these ideologies is probably laughable so it's mm. it's uh, it does present an interesting paradox and sort of i guess a bit of an ethical conundrum as to what to do with these kinds of aspects of popular ephemera and um, how how do you collect them and keep them and display them in ways that is both keeping with their intent and uh also though you know preserving them in a way that can be accessible for future generations so uh, so i think he yeah i mean it's his, uh, his own work is so interesting um on that end and, it, and it, it it ties nicely to a lot of other international movements that are you know it, there, there are so many of these kind of zine archives popping up all over and, and again it's not just about music then there's there, it's kind of much more um multidisciplinary than, than one particular art form
0: yeah it's very interesting like uh, i guess he kind of he kind of pinpoints uh this period, I think maybe it was around 2012, I think if I remember correctly, in the article where he says the there was kind of almost a pause in the production of zines and kind of following off from that, as you mentioned, the kind of the kind of heritage and archival impulse around, you know, zine archives, uh, there being one in Cork, one in Dublin. Um, yeah, and this kind of the heritage around it, which is great for scholars of music, but as you said, you know, for those who printed them and you know ran off 50 copies. Uh, and handed them out. You know, probably didn't expect them to last that long. So that's it's really yeah. interesting as well. Yeah, and th- yeah, the other two chapters in this. I mean, the again another standout chapter for me, I think, was Eileen Hogan's chapter, uh, Parochial Capital in the Cork music scene. I really, really enjoyed this one.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, here's the question though. You are a Cork man, are, are yeah. You? yeah, so I guess you read this with a particular with a particular lens that I, I'm very keen to hear your
0: opinion on. Yeah, well, likewise, <laughs> likewise. So you, you know, you studied in Cork and uh, would have been part of the Cork music scene as well, so same as myself, uh, studying Cork and played music in Cork. Uh, so that was very interesting. So I guess, like, really, what she's talking about here. So I guess this builds on her earlier research where she talks about Cork exceptionalism, and I guess for anyone not from Ireland. Uh, Cork is a second city Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, people there frequently, uh, half in jest and half in seriousness, refer to it as the real capital of Ireland. So this kind of idea of Cork exceptionalism is a a very real thing. Um, And so, yeah, from my understanding of Eileen's article, she's kind of building on this um, kind of Bourdieu's ideas of capital. And she applies her own kind of theory of capital, which is this idea of parochial capital, you know, the, the idea of the parish so I mean, for me, I thought it was really interesting. It's almost like it's like Bourgeois meets Cork popular music scene meets the GAA. You know, it's like you know the music in the parish almost. That kind of felt like, um, which I thought was really fun. Um, but yeah, Cork is yeah. yeah it's a, it's a very it's definitely its own thing, and I really enjoyed reading this. I mean, what, what what was your kind of take on this? Or
3: yeah, no, I mean, it was it was a real joy reading Eileen's chapter, and yeah, like you said, not least because I. I spent my formative adult, early adult years in Cork. That's kind mm-hmm. of where I cut my teeth in in my first band, and, and you know all of that. So, so actually, and half of the people she was interviewing are either
1: yeah.
3: people I know through through playing gigs or through uh, yeah putting on shows. So it it is. I mean, it is. It's so Irish in that sense in that like the scene is so small that everybody does sort of yeah. in one way or another if you've been there in a particular time and place you will know everyone yeah.
0: so shout outs to uh, Vicky, La- Vicky Lang and Joanne Collins yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Barry English all these people
3: absolutely Aoife Barry all those <laughs> all those guys really nice to see their names in here um, but yeah I mean I think I think Eileen does a, a really nice job of sort of somehow detaching herself from that and not least as well because she's actually not from Cork she is a limerick uh a limerick lady so she's able to, to view it with a certain mm-hmm. um perspective outsider perspective which I think is probably very valuable really um but yeah she I mean it is interesting because this kind of performance of as she called it, parochial capitalism um is something when you do take a step back and, and examine kind of how the scene works. It, it it definitely, I was convinced by it. It made a lot of mm. sense to me and it, it, um, it does, I think, describe nicely the actual on the ground interactions that people have in, in a live music setting. This kind of the need to sort of pay homage at the start of every gig or at the end of every gig, thanking,
1: mm.
3: you know, the, the various key players involved who've gotten you there. And um, there's a, there is there is a sort of a very unique identity in Cork um within the music scene and it is that of being separate to Dublin maybe that is sometimes the only unifying uh identity is that they are not Dublin and, and that's kind of possibly the only way you can connect these very different genres and very different styles but somehow that seems to be enough just not being Dublin is is probably enough in many ways.
2: I know that the last um I mean not not in any way in the sense of the detail that Eileen does, but I know that Jerry Smith um in his Noisy Island um book, you know, he sort of uh takes the phrase which had local currency, the mad the mad cork bands. Mm-hmm. Um, as the, <laughs> madness being the kind of the, the unifying factor. Um but I, I think that the the cork exceptionalism and the parochial capital I think probably says a lot more um and it, it it's not looking for necessarily for an idea of a of a this idea of a sound of a cork sound mm. whatever that is but but it's it's really more um what is it that gels what is it the gels and um the i think the you know the audience the musicians are the audiences in in most cases if that even happened in dublin too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I
0: think, I think there's yeah there's that there's the distinction that becomes kind of apparent in it. Um, I guess in Dublin versus Cork, because Dublin is so significantly bigger than Cork. Um, and I guess only I'm sure you can acknowledge this that like in the Cork scene there is that overlap because there's not enough people to be into a, one specific genre. So you know you can have punk bands playing with kind of indie bands and metal bands all on the same night. Whereas in Dublin, just because you've got that larger population, there are there's probably clearer distinctions.
3: I mean, usually, but just just to kind of interrupt you because, of course, Jamie's chapter will completely contradict that because there is that kind of wealth Mm -hmm. of genres happening in one gig, certainly in underground scenes or in DIY scenes where Mm -hmm. you will have singer-songwriters and and kind of uh, noise bands sharing the same stage. So, I mean, yeah, of course, I think for bigger acts, that point definitely stands. You're not going to have that kind of variety, uh, wide variety of genres on on the same bill, but but there still is a lot of it. I think this is the thing about Ireland and why it's so interesting, you know, writing about um, a country that is this small is that there are all of these uh, very small populations. There's only so many audiences who are going to go out to a gig on any given night. So it, it, um, it does make for an interesting case study.
0: Yeah, it was really good. I think that that was one of the kind of standouts for me, but maybe I'm a bit biased being from Cork as well. You're not that. <laughs> Just briefly touch on the final chapter in this, which is uh Griff Rollefson's um chapter on hip-hop interpolation, uh Rethinking uh, Auto and Appropriation in Irish Rap, um, which is really interesting as well. And I mean, I guess the importance in this, and I guess rap and hip-hop aren't like specialisms for me, but the importance in this is I guess the cultural dominance of the the US, I guess, and I guess the importance of music that comes out of I guess, African-American culture and traditions is, you know, the impact that that's had on popular music globally. You know, I guess, starting out with jazz in the earlier part of the 20th century and then hip hop as well, um, and how that's fed into popular music more more widely. Um, and again, this touches on the theme of identity, which, which cuts across, you know, everything here. The, re- the really funny and interesting uh, part of Griff's article, which he, he starts with this quote from Blind Boy, and he refers to it again in there. Um, yeah, so he he has this quote by, from Blind Boy, who's a podcaster in Ireland, and who also has, he's a musician as well.
3: And a writer and many
0: other things. Yeah, I know, and many other things, yeah. Um, but one of the things he's just talking about, um, I'm going to read the quote because it's interesting. Uh, you listen to old school trad tunes, especially, especially shit by the Dubliners. There's a hip hop nature to it, even like the Clancy Brothers, the song Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew by the Clancy Brothers. It sounds diddly-eye, um, but what it's about is fucking... Bruin Puchin, uh, up a mountain, beating the heads off guards, which is the police. And then this is the last part. Um, and he talks about the fucking come out, you black and tans, uh, who are colonial era troops. Come out and fight fight me like a man. He says that's NWA. That's fuck the police. It is fuck the police. And uh, I mean, it's very funny, but it's also really uh, kind of telling how, I guess, these practices in in hip-hop and rap, um about kind of storytelling and people's life experience um, that is that is and kind of rep or similar or can be seen in kind of irish folk music um, and kind of blind boy does a really kind of in a very interesting way linked this kind of irish folk ballad kind of vernacular tradition with you know the music straight out of compton you know and i think that's quite interesting so yeah i guess what griff's article is about is about the about finding Irish identity in this African American uh musical practice. I just found just thought it was really, really interesting. Uh, I liked how he's dealt with it. And yeah, curious on your take on it or what what you find interesting.
3: Yeah. No, I mean I think I think this is uh, yeah, I, I mean Griff's, Griff's whole argument and and it's exactly that, following what Blind Boy said, it it's mm-hmm kind of the Irish were already hip hop. <laughs> like it, yeah. th- th- this has been evident since the, since the start. So, so these kind of actions and these kinds of turns of phrases and these mm. kinds of, um, uh, philosophies that, well, they've been sort of evident in Ireland for, for donkey's years. So this is, mm. I mean, I guess part of what was so, uh, interesting looking at how he approached Irish hip hop and, mm. and and he again has a lot more research that he's doing on this topic too for anyone who's particularly interested in um in Irish hip hop today um and I think it's it's certainly one of the more interesting things is that you know wh- what is it that connects how is it that I, um, Irish artists connect with yeah what you like you said a, a, a style of music that is very much associated with the U.S. um but how do they make it their own, how is it, uh, what's Irish about it, and um, and Griff gives some really nice examples, and um, mm. Blind Boy obviously has, is known for his work in, in Rubber Bandits, but uh, there's lots of other examples that Griff gives in this chapter, yeah. um, and talks about speculative fiction, and um, he talks mm. about, uh, yeah, I mean, so many so many interesting um, acts that have come out in the last couple of years Loss and Gano family. Uh, he talks about scary era and, and, and kind of different uh, hip hop acts that are you know, from like two mm. decades ago as well. So, yeah.
0: I guess, it, I, I guess as a piece of research, it's really use, useful because the way he analyzes it, the kind of textual analysis, it could it can be kind of reapplied to like other musical scenes in Ireland. It's this kind mm-hmm. of, you know, finding Irish identity and representing Irishness in these, I guess musical practices be them like folk rock or, or rock or punk or whatever that are kind of emanating from other places but it's kind of like finding the Irish Irishness in that or representing Irishness through that which I think is interesting so I think Griff's work is really useful methodologically for other researchers and kind of looking at other areas of popular music so that's kind of what stood out to me about it personally. Yeah I, um,
2: I mean obviously the, the project on your treasure is the this uh, cipher Fair project uh, at UCC, which is funded by the ERC, and that's a global hip hop project. Um, and one of the one of the ideas uh, central premise to that is that that hip hop is already there. You know, it's already there in these various global locations. I mean, a per- uh, you know, from a personal point of view, um, I I have to ask myself why is it I find it easier to. To connect to Algerian sometimes on a musical level i I sometimes find it easier it's it that seems to be a better fit for me or even italian hip hop um and I think it 's something to do with with this unease between we kind of felt that there's this that almost Irish ballad tradition is the opposite of hip hop because we 're in for these long extended melodic forms and and hip hop is is working on a much different kind of musical bases. Mm. Um And what I really like about, you know, and I think at first when, when acts like Scary Air and so on came out, people were quite critical of I- Dublin or Cork or Irish accents in general, um, fusing with hip hop. And I think that's changed a lot um, because, because I think that the artists themselves, it's not just something graphing something onto a genre. But as you said it's going back into it's going back into social issues it's going back into deeper issues of social protest so yeah i think it's 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 a really fantastic inspiration and i yeah. think
3: i'm glad you raised the point of accents as well because it, obviously it comes up in in this chapter um but it's something that i think is kind of littered throughout the book as well and, and it is that really sort of uh that Almost troubling relationship that Ireland um, and Irish people tend to have with hearing Irish accents in mm. in musical form, and it it, it you know it it um, it has a difficult history. It, it's one that is constantly overshadowed with uh, kind of unspoken discussions of class. Um, mm and place and identity and belonging and all of these issues that are so, so important to talk about, but that we just uh, still are, are kind of very political and, and Mm. are still topics that are not often addressed, but it is really heartening to see how much, especially, I think in the last even five years or so, how many more acts have come out who are rapping, singing, using much like just a really like clear vernacular that's, Mm. um, that's just yeah it's heartening because i i feel like that's a real shift from even 20 years ago when uh you know to sort of really sing in your in your actual accent um what was potentially quite a <laughs> quite a political thing i mean i think it always is yeah. but it um but if, if it happens more then it becomes a conversation that we're we're more used to i, I think
0: i think it kind of it comes back to like the start of our conversation with just the messiness of ireland as well and it's I guess it's negotiating with like the dominance of American and British popular music and the ideas of authenticity and struggling with our post-colonial past. I mean, it kind of just reminds me there, kind of as you were talking about the Ottilie Patterson example, you know, and obviously she's a, an Irish singer singing the blues tradition who was exceptional at it. Um, but then of course, there we go. We've got these uh, Irish rap artists now who are really embracing their Irishness, their uh, regional dialects um and kind of turns a phrase as well and then ottilie who's kind of really kind of representing the blues tradition then as well and actually being accepted when she toured in the states by blues musicians there as being kind of as having the sound or the soul of the music maybe um so yeah i guess it's kind of part of this longer negotiation with identity and authenticity and and voice it's kind of which cuts across lots of these chapters absolutely absolutely
3: and i think it's it's uh Griff's chapter in particular as well that the the connection of hip hop with the Irish English language and the Hiberno English is <laughs> mm. it, it's so interesting and 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 the relationship just with literature and with um language is is really really interesting and it's something that came up in the project that John and I worked on before before this book the mapping popular music um in Dublin project about about sort of that uneasy and at sometimes um very complex relationship with um Irish music and literature and and um identity and and issues like that but I think the the messiness that you talk about of of all of these things is of course what makes it all so so beautiful and so enjoyable to study and makes it such a joy to um to listen to all of these things um I think I think so anyway and I think it it's it's something that I that whole idea as well came up for me anyway in, in the um, afterward, especially, um, you know, talking to Neil Hannan and, and this, especially issues of identity and um, belonging and all of these kind of very tricky conversations that you could say are happening at the moment in, in this kind of brexit is still looming above us all conversations then
1: i send your father up i follow one of the better who got the sound system Sing on the London boss <laughs> I go money mad with them i open out the door go to the jacks me out way and on the landing don know the wheelers that you're making shit your mother has a headache on Wake up, Mickey, wake. Ah, yeah, right. I'm in the kitchen drinking tea All of a sudden it dawns on me Fuck it's all there I swallow you off the tear When i went how I spend the money Let's hand it at the counter by me Janice Uncle Tommy I'm the for a doll Now it isn't that far But there's a passer of a hill At the top of the new park There's a queue outside the office It's too small a place But 57 pound oh, off is worth the fucking weight The smell of feet The smell of sweat The smell of cider Now there's a young one in front of me And I wind up beside her He looks at her and grunts then he starts to pick.
0: He's when he's that, the to sing. Yeah the so yeah I guess that takes us on to so that's after part three you have a coda with two sections in it. Um so the first is a chapter by Jerry Smith, Making Spaces and Saving Places, and then the next one is it's kind of an extended interview that you've done with neil Neil Hannan uh, famously of the Divine Comedy. I wonder, did you initially interview Neil with the intention of writing a more kind of scholarly article and then decide to leave it more kind of journalistic like an interview? Or, you know, what was your kind of intention with that? Because you've obviously left it outside of the three kind of thematic sections as well. So maybe you can talk to that a little.
3: Um, well, I think uh, uh, the, the, the main reason actually is basically is the format that we inherited of the book. So, uh, so this series uh, have very kind of actually quite strict guidelines in how they um, uh, format the book. Well, strict within reason, but they basically all include an afterwards section, which is um, designed to be an interview with um, an artist from the country and and it's designed to be sort of published in that sort of conversational form. So my discussion with with Neil was always, I think, going to be shaped in this kind of a way. Um, I ended up probably writing maybe a little bit more of an introduction than some other of the books in the series have, but I just felt like it warranted a a lot of prefacing and and I think it there's a lot of you know things to cover for people who may not know his career or or know of it briefly but don't realise the extent of the amount of work that he's done. Um because I think he's someone who, again, is very often kind of left out of the Irish popular music canon. Um even though I would consider him to be definitely one of the foremost uh pop artist of the island of Ireland without a doubt, um, in terms of just output and career and longevity and styles and just songwriting technique and, and voice and, and a lot of other and, things. And his
2: and his work also across obviously into film and T V.
3: Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean that's it. I mean he he worked on so many different uh, platforms. So it's the uh, yeah, it was actually just such a pleasure to get to mm. you know talk to him in depth, and and I think there was so much as well that couldn't fit into the en- into in, uh, into the actual published thing in the end. So there was a lot more conversation that could probably make a whole other article. But yeah,
0: he's yeah. He's, he's he's a really interesting subject, um, and I guess because he's very much you know an Irish musician, but then he's also kind of at the periphery in a way as well. Because you know you you do ask him in the interview about being part of the Irish scene, and he kind of. I guess he just says he's kind of there and he isn't in a way he's kind of like part of the English scene as well. And he's just, you know, I guess when he, when Blur and Suede were happening, he was kind of, he felt resonance with that. And, and then also kind of coming back to the Irishness, I guess, linked to Father Ted, which of course, Father Ted was pitched at Irish media corporations who turned it down. And then of course it went to channel four, which is part of the British media kind of um, ecosystem. Um, So yeah, he's just a very interesting subject and kind of, yeah. was there anything in particular that kind of came up in the conversation that, you know, that uh, I guess that kind of stood out to you or, or any takeaways from the conversation with Neil in particular?
3: Oh, I think, well, the whole conversation was really interesting, but I liked the point that you just brought up there of, of sort of actually being able to have a career that exists on a completely um, detached from a local scene. And I think that's mm. actually so much more representative than what we might think as well, especially now. I mean, I think maybe during um, the kind of 80s and 90s when Neil was talking about it, it might've been slightly more exceptional to kind of just completely bypass the local scene and just go straight to to London and or just kind of operate on this pr- French and, and very much more European international stage straight away. But, but you know, it, it, it is also uh, the case that happens to a lot of artists and especially from smaller countries. I think sometimes you can just see yourself, uh, it just, it, it doesn't work out that way. And And actually... I think as well from talking to a lot of people uh, throughout the course of you know editing and writing this book and and through other projects as well you just sort of see how much for a lot of people dublin isn't an attractive place to try and set up mm-hmm. base and to try and slog that out as a musician so it, it is interesting to see the other trajectory than the other pathways of, of, of i guess making it as an artist and i guess for me, it also links to probably one of the most famous examples, in fact, probably the most famous example from Ireland of somebody who'd managed to completely bypass the live music scene in the country at all. In fact, internationally, it would be somebody like Enya, who just can go on to have uh, an un- unbelievable international career and um, be the highest-selling artist of all time, solo artist out of the island of Ireland and has never um, done a concert tour or any kind of gig. So I think there's it, it's really refreshing, I think, really, to kind of have, have it reminded to us that there's so many other ways to be a musician and to be an artist that doesn't actually involve having to tick all of these boxes and go about it in a particular route, that there's so many other ways to um, express yourself and, and get your music heard and get your voice yeah. heard. But that because maybe people don't go the traditional routes or don't have um, that kind of history seeped in particular networks that very often then sometimes it can lead to people being kind of on the periphery of of that history or of that retelling. So, mm. yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it was fun. It was really fun to have this conversation with Neil. And, and he was really generous with his time and with his mm. with his thoughts. So I hope that kind of came through in the interview.
0: Yeah, it's a great interview and a great kind of case study. And, and like you said, the book does really well in, in that sense. It talks about the nitty gritty of the scenes like Eileen Hogan's, you know, very much in Quark and of Quark to like, as you mentioned, people like Enya and Neil Hannan who kind of almost circumvent that whole traditional kind of hierarchical scene structure. <laughs> And I guess we've been talking for quite a while already. Maybe as we kind of wrap it up, having finished the project and finally got it uh, published and out, which I'm sure you're happy to kind of get to that point, you know, and I had some time maybe to sit back and kind of let it sit and come back and think about it. What What are your takeaways from the whole project now? And um, maybe if you have any thoughts on like future trajectories of research on Irish popular music kind of based on what's here, um, or maybe any omissions or, you know, any kind of final thoughts about the work and, you know, the future of popular music in Ireland?
2: Well, it might be a good point to to just mention uh, one chapter we didn't, uh, which is Jerry Smith's. Mm. Um, because, uh, you know... I, I apologise. I think earlier I referred to that as the afterword, whereas I think strictly speaking it was called the coda. But it's like an mm. afterword. Yeah. Um, and so you, you so as you know, you don't know what someone's going to write when you invite them to write an afterword, and they've looked at the volume. And I think, uh, and I think uh, to be very honest, and you know, I'm really pally with Jerry, but at, at first I kind of read it and I thought. I was, I was just stunned. I didn't know what to, to think. And and then, you know, because he's talking about the green turn and he's, he's linking popular music studies to issues of ecology, mm. and this is all pre-COVID. Um, but it was very telling that he was looking at, you know, from somebody that has a vast experience of researching this area, that he's looking at you know, he looked at at, at the Pogues Rain Night in Soho and, and Sinead O'Connor again on the Late Late Show, more recent um, appearance, the, the Late Late Show being um, sort of the number one chat show in Ireland. And and it was very interesting to see how he compared the, the concerns of what popular music studies were maybe in the 1990s um, with what they might be now and how how fixed ideas of identity and of, of performance and place and space are so different to what they wear. So, so I just wanted to mention that because it, it, it sort of, um, it kind of half answers the question. So it was a really, really wonderful con- contribution to the book. Um, and I, I, for myself, I know one you might have some different ideas. Mine would be that I think we need, um, closer readings of musicians, um, it, it was noted not in the, not in the part about uh, the introduction that I wrote, perhaps in Anya or Lennon Rosal. So I'm not quite sure, but we don't we don't have biographies, we don't have PhDs on that focused on Anya um, or Neil or or um, mm-hmm. you know Daniel O'Donnell or whatever um, on 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 popular musicians. We don't have actually studies that are are academic studies that are focused um, on those sort of big. Uh, popular musician names. Um, personally, I would like to see more of that. Obviously, uh, much more on, on local scenes. Um, could be. I mean, for example, you know, we 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 touched on uh, some places in the book, but there are many more places in Ireland. Um, so, Belfast, Dublin, Cork, Limerick, um, and a couple of other places were mentioned, uh, but there are far more. Going on, and there are small town and or big town and small city scenes as well, um, and maybe maybe closer readings of particular moments. Um, so I'm 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 involved in in the review of of Norma Glocken and Joanna Braniff's book Tomorrow Evening, um, which is how Belfast got the blues um, published by Intellect 2020, and you know they're focusing on on just the sort of the middle years of the 60s in Belfast, pre-Troubles, and maybe just put centering on 1964 and the Rolling Stones visit in 1965 and the Peter Leonard film and so on. Um and I'm 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 kind of reading that this week and it's just I'm learning so much. I'm not just learning about popular music, but just about the Ireland of the time, the Northern Ireland of the time, um, the Dublin Belfast connections and so on. So yeah, that's that's my um, That's my thoughts on it for the moment, and what we might be looking at sort of uh, major artists, smaller scenes, um key historical moments, or maybe not key historical moments but but moments that are interpreted um, to show us a different kind of history yeah
0: and two, two things that come to mind there um Uh, Because you mentioned something that's missing our closer reading of musicians, maybe like PhDs on specific musicians, like you said, maybe Neil Hannon or someone. Um, Yeah, and for me, I I definitely like that kind of work. But do you think the reason that there isn't more of that at the moment is that it's it's kind of less of a trend, I guess, in the kind of academic study of popular music now to kind of focus on individuals? Because it has that kind of almost reflective canonizing effect Whereas now we talk more about like topics and concepts in a way dealing with kind of yeah I don't know if you kind of get my I mean I, I
3: no I see your point completely Jeremiah and I think uh, yeah on the one hand you, you could say that that is less the trend to focus on individual artists and things like that but at the same point when we were when we were writing the introduction John Lunan and, and myself like we were going through sort of recent PhDs that have been written on any kind of topics to do with Irish popular music and um we mentioned it in the introduction that, you know, there is this great work coming out of Ireland that, that deals a lot more with sort of local scenes and mm. um, different networks, but then internationally what's being written about Irish popular music kind of mm. falls into the category of "You Too" and only "You Too." So, mm. you know, you get these very different stories um, and perspectives that are being told. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously it's great that there's scholarship being done on "You Too" mm. for sure, but mm. it kind of, I think, it, I feel like it just, there's still going to be re- inter- re, uh retelling a, a type of a, a rockist aesthetic um mm-hmm. and a very kind of boy band guitar band type of um representation that isn't actually as we 've seen through this book isn't all of that isn't all that re- uh, reflective of what's actually happening in Irish popular music or has been happening happening yeah. in the last century and um, so for me I think that it, it I think we've left lots of breadcrumbs throughout the book of of where we would love it to go and there's so many things I would have loved to include as well had we I mean I think our book in the series as far as I know we maxed out the number of chapters we could have had um we have the I think compared to all the maiden um in the Routledge Global Popular Music Series books I think ours possibly has the most number of chapters. So we really, we really pushed it as much as we could to include as many chapters and include as many voices. Um, but yet, of course, we also, you know, to include is to omit. So we, we've left out lots of things that we would have loved to have.
0: Of course, it's, it's it's impossible to like include and cover everything. And, you know, as an editorial team, I think you've done a great job in giving like a great overview and snapshot. I mean, as you said, you've left lots of breadcrumbs. Um, but for me, an omission uh And this is a bias, of course, because I've got an interest in jazz and jazz studies, um, is kind of a lack of representation of jazz in Ireland. Um, And again, it's another niche scene. And again, one could argue and some do argue that it's kind of separate from popular music studies. Uh, I I wouldn't argue that myself. Um, I mean, the Otterley Patterson does kind of touch on it in a way because it's linked to the blues tradition. Um, But I know, for example, people like Damien Evans have written, um, you know, on the, the Dublin jazz scene. Um, So for me, that's just an omission, but that's based on my personal bias um, more so than anything else.
3: No, you're totally right. Uh, We could have it would have been lovely to have um, a chapter or two um, mm. or have more jazz sort of represented. And But you're right, it is also a, a genre that's kind of highly contested depending on yeah. who you're talking to. Um, and another chapter that we, you know, would have loved to have seen would have been on Irish country music. I mm. think there's such a huge scene there um, that uh, John Miller has done a lot of really good research and recently finished his PhD on this topic. So, you know, there's, there's so much scope there for, for looking at, uh, really, really vibrant scene of Irish country music that both exists as a very Irish scene, but also does have this kind of uh, international connections to uh, both to like Americana, but also Mm -hmm. to um, much more sort of... um, Dolly Parton almost scenes as yeah. well, you know. And then I think for me too, it would have been so really, really nice if there had been um, some scholarship we could have connected with um, on Vincari or Traveller music scenes. Mm-hmm. I think there's, you know, a lot more that can be done there. And I hope that this is something somebody looks into um, at some point in the future because I think the the relationship and the depth that so much Irish popular music has to uh, Traveller music is is just Immense. So it would be something that I think is hugely worthy of a um, a study in and of its own self.
2: Yeah, I'm just going to go back to the, the jazz um, issue. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I was actually at the Documenting Jazz uh, Day or two that, that Damien Evans organized in January 2019. And we uh, in DCU, uh, along with, with Damien heading it, um, had a kind of a music and memorabilia day where where people were invited to bring in um, tickets, albums, uh, records, whatever they had. And, and Damien is trying to reach out to that that population because there's this conventional history saying that jazz was banned in Ireland in the 1930s through censorship and nothing came until you had the more avant-garde, avant-garde jazz in the 1970s. And that's simply not true. Um, so I think there, there are similarly... Um, there, you know, I only touched on it in the introduction, but there's probably histories um of of some rock and roll in the nineteen fifties, um that, that nobody really has explored to any great extent yet. And and perhaps other pockets of um of that mid-20th century, particularly where where the conventional sort of the orthodox history is that nothing happened in Ireland because it was such a repressed Catholic country primarily. Um and I think that I think that scholars are chipping away at that, and that's that's really great. Um, but you're right. I mean, we yeah, country music was was touched on to an extent in Sheila Denver's chapter, but that was a particular, um, you know, a very small aspect of country music that was was there. Yeah, I agree with that.
3: And I think for me too as well. Uh, just one last thing is, of course, the fact that you know, geographically, we didn't get to touch on as many parts and nooks and crannies in Ireland as I would have liked to you know I'm from County Wexford and um, my parents are there my sister I've got one sister up in Donegal and uh, you know there's kind of so many amazing things happening on those local regional levels that is just I mean it's you know you're never going to get to cover everything but I think there's uh, really exciting things happening there all the same and especially as people hopefully more and more decentralized out of Dublin and set up studios in interesting parts of the country that there's kind of gonna be these interesting pockets of of music making and and creativity in in other parts of Ireland that maybe haven't been at the center of popular music before.
0: Yeah, as we said, it's it's an impossible task to cover everything. Um, as I said, you've done incredibly well, and congratulations to you again mm-hmm. and the authors on 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 you know covering so much. I guess it's also a testament to the kind of richness and diversity of like musical practice, you know, popular music practice in Ireland as well. Um, so hopefully, we see uh, lots of these pieces of research kind of inspiring other. Uh, scholars to kind of, you know, delve deeper and to kind of, you know, kind of explore this a bit further. But yeah, so I guess, I guess that's all unless anyone has anything else that they want to add?
2: Just to thank you, Jeremiah. Thank you so much.
0: That is it for part one of the Made in Ireland feature. Part two, featuring an extended conversation with Triana Nihilchon on her essay from this collection will be available imminently. So please do go and check that out too. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.
1: Breathing, it's such an eerie feeling, darling He said, there's nothing in the woodshed It's your imagination, end of the conversation, darling